Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and ad-free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. Our electricity grid's getting greener and cleaner every year. Renewable energy is one of the top job markets in the U.S. and all around the world. Electric cars are finally getting taken seriously by mainstream auto manufacturers. These are glorious days, my friend. Glorious days. Yeah, hold up. The problem is this transition isn't happening nearly fast enough to keep up with the growing population around the world and the increasing number of developing nations that are industrializing around the world. The amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere breaks new records every single year, and the predictions from climate scientists continue to get more and more dire. Assuming things continue at this pace, we may reach a point of no return. A point where it's going to take something really drastic to turn things around. And among some of those drastic last-ditch ideas is the idea of putting a giant solar shade in space to just simply block the sun from hitting us, or at least block enough of it to return our global temperatures to, you know, pre-industrial levels. Now, I've heard about this idea, I'm sure many of you out there have heard about this idea, but how would something like this work? Is it even possible? What would it cost? And maybe the biggest question, would it even fix the problem? I've never really seen this broken down, so I decided to give it a try. So get those slide rules ready, because we're about to math the shit out of this. So when you talk about what makes the planet warm, there's a lot of variables involved, and it's a very complicated system, but if you want to be reductionist about it, you could really break it down to just two things. The amount of heat entering the system from the sun, and the ability of the atmosphere to trap that heat and prevent it from escaping. Now obviously the better option is to regulate the atmosphere so it's trapping the right amount of heat, but if let's just say things go a little bit too far and we can't do that, or aren't willing to do that, then the other option is to reduce the amount of heat entering the system. So that's what we're talking about here today. You know, how do we do that? But before we get to the main event, let's talk about an option that's a little bit more down to earth. So one way to go about it would be to seed clouds up in the upper atmosphere. Uh, these are white, they're reflective, they have a higher albedo, and they can prevent a lot of the heat from actually reaching the surface. But clouds are not very long-lived, though, and we would constantly be trying to replenish them with thousands of jets flying into the air all the time, adding more CO2 to the atmosphere. It kind of seems like it defeats the purpose. Now, others have suggested kind of sprinkling reflective dust up into the stratosphere, and we know that something like that might work because we've seen it work in 1991. On June 15th of that year, Mount Pinatubo erupted in the Philippines, injecting 15 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, where the winds dispersed the haze all around the world. And the effect was that over the next year, global temperatures actually dropped by one degree. Uh, now, we've seen this before in the Mount Tambora eruption, which I've talked about before. It actually created what they called the, the year without a summer. It dropped the temperatures that much. But this was the first time that it happened at a time when we had satellites up in the sky able to actually monitor and measure this at a very, you know, detailed level. So doing the aerosol thing with balloons up in the stratosphere is an option, but we're still talking about a massive operation here. We're talking about 15 million tons of stuff we're putting up into the atmosphere. And there's still a lot of unintended consequences that we don't know about. There's still a lot of room for things to go wrong there. Now these fall into the category of geoengineering, and the problem with these is that it's not really reversible. If you don't 100% know what the consequences of this are gonna be, and there is no way to know that because you've never done it before, then you're kind of stuck with it. If you remember, it wasn't the machines that blacked out the sky in the Matrix. So there are some good reasons for building a massive solar shade in space as opposed to doing the geoengineering thing. 
there are some good arguments for the geoengineering thing as well, but for our purposes, let's just say we have 10 years to do this and it all comes down to us building this shade. We all got to come together and do that. Here's what that would look like. All right, so the first thing you need to figure out is how big does this thing need to be? Actually, no. The first thing you need to figure out is where you're going to put this because deciding where it's going to go will determine how big that it needs to be. So where between the sun and the earth could you put a thing like this? And I know that before I even finished that sentence, a lot of you out there were like, L1. And if you are one of those people, huh? I mean, you and I, we're like, I mean, that's weird. And if you don't know what L1 is, well, you must be new here. And let me be the first to say welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. I'm glad to have you here. And to get you caught up on why everybody else was saying L1 and not you, it's because L1 stands for Lagrange point one. And Lagrange points are areas around the Earth, or any orbiting body for that matter, where the gravity of the Earth and the gravity of the Sun kind of even each other out. And Lagrange points are stable, so if you put something out into a Lagrange point, it will pretty much stay there relative to the Earth. There are five Lagrange points designated L1 through L5, and L1 is the one between the Earth and the Sun. L2 is on the opposite side of the Earth, kind of lined up with the Sun, and this is actually where the James Webb Space Telescope is going to go. Alright, so now that we know where it's going, how big does this thing to be? Well, the good news is you only have to block 2% to offset the amount of rise that we've seen and get things back to sort of a pre-industrial level. And uh, by the way, I got this and most of the stuff from this video, actually, from a couple of different sources. One is Ethan Siegel's blog, Starts With a Bang, which I highly recommend. It's great. And the other is from a 2006 paper from Professor Roger Angel, and where he actually took a, a total feasibility study of this entire idea. And it's really interesting, goes really detailed. I'll put a link to it down in the description if you want to go check it out. So yeah, 2%, but we have to know uh, what 100% is so we can calculate what the 2% is, like 2% of what exactly. So what is 100% coverage? Well, a shade with the same diameter as Earth would be 12,742 kilometers, but a shade at L1 would need to be just slightly bigger because the sun is way bigger than the Earth, making the light that hits the Earth sort of a cone with the Earth on the small end of it. So L1, which is 1.5 million kilometers up the cone, would be at a slightly larger segment of cone, so it would need to be bigger. Now the distance from the Earth to the Sun is 149.6 million kilometers, so L1 is about 1% of the total distance. So let's raise the size about 1%, which will get us to a diameter of 12,869 kilometers. That seems like a lot of explanation for not much difference. Alright, so we have the diameter, now let's figure out the area that we need to cover. And for that, we just apply a little pi r squared, and that comes out to 129,984,558 square kilometers. Luckily, we only have to cover about 2% of that, which puts us at 2,599,691 square kilometers. And for the sake of my laziness, and for easier spitballing, I will be rounding this video, so let's just say the magic number is 2.6 million kilometers squared. So what does 2.6 million square kilometers look like, you may be asking? Uh, especially if you're an American? Well, it comes out to almost exactly the combined areas of the states of Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Montana, and Wyoming. About a third of the continental United States. So yeah, not only do we need to build something that could completely cover that, we need to launch that into space. I think this qualifies as a mega project. And this is where you pound your fist on the desk and you say, well, we're not gonna launch it all at once, moron! I know, calm down. The question is, what do you do with it when you get to L1? Do you assemble it into one giant shade? Do you have sort of a free-flowing um, swarm of shades? Or do you have like a cloud of micro shades? 
Now each has their advantages. The solid structure might be the easiest to control because it is only one monolithic device. And this does matter because Lagrange points aren't really stable, they're stable-ish. So whatever we put up there will constantly be fighting against the various forces at play there. Now the downside of one giant shade is that, you know, if some errant piece of space debris were to fly through and hit it, it would knock the whole thing out. You know, there's, there's no redundancy there. And plus, every single time you dock one of those pieces together, that's another opportunity for something to go wrong and screw the whole thing up. All of those problems can be fixed with a swarm of shades. Of course, the danger there is that there's more chances for collisions between shades if one of them goes offline and loses guidance. And then there's the idea of just dumping off a cloud of either micro shades or even just dust and debris to create a haze to block the light. Of course, that's not particularly better than the geoengineering idea. It's permanent and there's nothing you can do about, you know, any unintended consequences that come from that. So yeah, the mid-sized shades with some kind of guidance unit attached to it kind of wins out for me. I think it's sort of the best of both worlds. Um, you know, if you needed to adjust the light and let more light in for some reason, all you have to do is just turn it sideways and that lets more light in. Uh, so, you know, hey, take that unintended consequences. So now you have to ask how big each of these shades would be. One option would be to make them as big as possible by performing some miracle of origami to unfurl once it gets there, kind of like we do with, you know, solar panels on satellites. But that adds complexity, more opportunities for things to go wrong, and it adds extra hardware and weight. Ultimately, it's all about surface area and getting as much surface area to L1 per launch as possible. So we're looking for something simple, inexpensive, and will fit inside of a payload fairing. And we're going to need the biggest payload fairing possible. And in the next five years or so, barring any disasters, Easily the biggest one will be the SpaceX Starship. Starship's fairing will be a massive 9 meters wide and 18 meters tall. Even the Saturn V's payload was 6.6 .6 meters, which is about what the new Glenn is expected to have. Now the SLS Block II cargo vehicle should have an 8.4 meter fairing, and there are designs and concepts that could get it up to 10. But I'd argue that the Starship is really the only way to do this. You would have to have a fully reusable vehicle, and Starship's the only vehicle literally ever built that could do that. So let's just say we got these super thin, down to like a millimeter thin, which is insane. Especially considering it's going to need to be about 8.75 meters wide to allow a little bit of room for the guidance and control modules that are attached to them. So let's say we're able to do that and we can just stack them up inside of a Starship fairing. How many could we fit in there? By the way, this is how big that shade would be standing next to an average sized person. Well, we'll have to allow for a small kick stage to actually get these shades out to L1, which again is 1.5 million kilometers away. So we're not gonna be sending the Starship all the way out there. So I'm guessing maybe about three meters for that, give or take a little bit. So that would leave about 15 meters of stacking space, which if our shades are one millimeter thick, would come out to about 15,000 shades per Starship launch. Doing a little bit of math, an 8.75 meter diameter circle would come out to just about 60 square meters per shade at 15,000 per starship. And you get that each starship could put 900,000 square meters of shades up at a time. That's 0.9 square kilometers. So how many launches would it take to cover the full 2.6 million square kilometers needed to reduce the sun's energy by 2%? We'll divide 2.6 million by 0.9, and you get 2,888,888 launches. If we were to launch a fully loaded Starship every single day, that would take 7,914 years. Yeah, I was hoping for closer to 10 years. If we were to get this shade up in 10 years, that would be 719 launches a day. A launch every two minutes, every day, for 10 years. Clearly, we have already entered the realm of absurd with this idea, so let's just keep going and ask how much something like this would cost. Now, there are a lot of ways to calculate this, like cost per kilogram of launch, but just to make things simple, in November of 2019, Elon said at a chat with Air Force Lieutenant General John Thompson that Starship could operate for as low as $2 million per launch. 
So if we were to go off that figure, and I will, because it's a big, nice round number and easy to work with, that would come out to $5.8 trillion. And that's just for the launches to get up there. And that doesn't even factor in that kick stage that I was talking about. So I think I'm actually being pretty generous here. And that's just the cost of getting them up there. What's the actual cost of making these shades? Well, I did a little bit of Googling and the SpaceX Starlink satellites that they're already producing in mass, those are around 250,000 per satellite. So in some ways these shades would be simpler than the Starlink satellites, but in other ways they won't be. L1 is really far out there. There is no way we'll be able to service them, so they'll have to be fully autonomous. Plus they'll need to be able to communicate over that distance and with each other. So just to once again be generous and have an easy round number to work with, why don't we make it, I don't know, 100,000 a shade? Maybe, something like that? All right, math time. If it's around 15,000 shades per launch and we're doing roughly 2.9 million launches, that's 43.5 billion shades at $100,000 per shade. Well, that's 4.35 quadrillion dollars. You know what? I didn't, I didn't factor in economies of scale. So let's just, let's just take it half of that. Let's say it's 50,000. How about that? Yeah, so that would take it down to 2.175 quadrillion dollars. So yeah, that's... That, 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 that's, that's much more reasonable. Yeah, so I, I, I couldn't help myself, so I actually stacked up some dollar bills to see how many per millimeter, and it came out to about five per millimeter, and it turns out if you stack up 2.175 quadrillion dollars, it would reach the Lagrange point. 290 times. Yeah, a stack of that much money would stretch 435 million kilometers. That's far enough to reach the sun and then keep going and hit the Earth's orbit on the other side of the sun and then hit Mars. This is not just an insane amount of money. It's actually 26 times the global GDP of $81 trillion. Okay, so there's literally not enough money in the world to do this, but are there even enough resources? I mean, we have to cover an area the size of two Columbias. Whatever we make this out of has to be super cheap, super abundant, very strong so you can cut it into very thin slices, and, if possible, a little bit transparent. So transparent might be a weird requirement for a shade, but according to that paper by Roger Angel, these shades would be constantly bombarded by solar wind, that's energetic particles as well as photons, and it would be constantly fighting against that unless it was dispersing the photons as opposed to just taking all the force themselves. So there are various ideas around that. One is to have uh, sails with tiny little pores in it that can kind of let just a little bit of it through. One might be to have slats that kind of deflect the light at a certain angle. And one is to just create out of a type of glass that can just sort of diffuse the light more than shade it. Now glass isn't the worst idea because it is made out of very abundant materials and it's somewhat cheap. The problem is creating an 8.75 meter plate of glass that's only one millimeter thick that's strong enough to survive launch. It might have to be some kind of advanced gorilla glass technology or something like that. By the way, there is a version of this idea that doesn't block the sun at all, but actually creates sort of a Fresnel lens. And this would simply spread the light around in various angles around the Earth, so just less light is hitting us. Now, since they aren't totally blocking the light, you might have to cover more area out there in order to diffuse enough light to make a difference. Uh, but that is an idea that's been floated around. Now, I also did read about the possibility of some materials that could absorb the light on one side and emit it as heat out the other side that would kind of push back and keep it in a bit of a, an equilibrium there. But whatever these materials, we're going to need to have a lot of it. Like one Kazakhstan worth. 
And most likely it's something we would want to mine from the sea floor so that we're not you know, destroying copious amounts of land that people are actually living and farming on. Plus there's a the transportation of that material to the factories building the shades, which, oh by the way, holy crap, so many factories. I used that 10 year timeline earlier saying that it would take 791 launches a day. Well, each one of those launches would carry 15,000 shades in it, which would mean that the factories around the world making these shades would need to make 11,866,000 every single day. And once again, I would like to point out that each one of these shades would be this big. I mean, how do you even get that to the rocket facility? Chances are you'd need to build the factories really close to the launch center so it'd be easier to get them on the rockets. Or, more likely, you'd have to fully construct construction and launch facilities together for that one singular purpose. And hundreds of them around the world. So, at this point it seems pretty obvious that the whole 10-year timeline that I've been sticking to is ridiculous and impossible. If this were to happen, it would be a multi-generational project optimistically at least 100 years. So the reason I've been using this arbitrary 10-year you know, timeline here is because every single time people talk about this idea, it's sort of like a last-ditch effort. It's the thing that you do when everything else has failed and our entire existence hangs in the balance. In that situation, you're not going to have hundreds of years to play with. I mean, we don't even right now have hundreds of years to play with if the worst projections are true. So there's literally not enough money in the world to pay for these things. Gathering the resources would be horribly destructive to our planet, and then there's the energy required to build all of this in the first place. And on top of all that, we may literally not have enough fuel for the shades themselves. The shades will need to be able to stabilize themselves up there with control thrusters of some kind, and that's going to require some kind of fuel. Something super efficient that can last a long time. Tiny ion drives might be the way to go because they are super efficient and produce only a tiny amount of thrust, but that might be enough to, you know, allow some kind of stability and whatnot. But even those run on argon or xenon. And we only produce six metric tons of xenon every year, so that seems to be out of the question. There's 700,000 metric tons that we produce of argon every year, but we also use that for other things. So maybe if we used all of it, there might be enough. I don't know, this one is still a bit of a question mark for me, to be honest. You guys can talk about this one in the comments. And another issue with the shades is what do we do with them when they cease to be operational? They are all going to have some kind of limited lifespan. Roger Angel said maybe 20 to 30 years. So eventually when they do go down, we're going to have to be able to get them out of L1 or else they'll start crashing into each other and we'll have sort of an L1 Kessler syndrome going on. And last but not least, 2.9 million Starship launches. That is a lot of burned methane. My buddy Tim Dodd did a video about this and he figured out that a Starship would produce about 2,683 tons of CO2 per launch, which, yikes. Multiply that by 2.9 million and we're putting 7.7 .7 billion metric tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Which seems to kind of defeat the point. And just for context and to maybe make you cry a little bit. That, on a yearly basis, is pretty close to the same amount that the airline industry produces. And they only produce 2.5% of global emissions. So, that's why we have to talk about building a sunshade in the first place. Yeah. So this whole video, I've been trying to stick with current technologies, or at least technologies that'll be available in the next five to 10 years, like the Starship. But Roger Angel, who wrote the paper that I keep referring back to, um, he did no such thing. There are theoretical future technologies that could help make this a little more doable. For example, in his paper, he talked about building a giant electromagnetic railgun that could just 
fire this stuff out in the atmosphere. He suggested this could be built into the side of a tall mountain or just built tall enough that it could get outside of the atmospheric resistance that we would encounter with a regular launch, but that would put it on its way toward L1 with maybe only just a little bit of propellant needed to get it the rest of the way there. He suggested a railgun would be able to launch literally every five minutes and it would be cheaper outside the cost of building, you know, a three mile high gun. Now another theoretical idea that might help push this thing along, and don't laugh too much here, would be some kind of electromagnetic drive or M drive for the shades themselves instead of the ion thrusters. I've covered M drives before, it's super debatable whether or not these things produce any thrust at all, but if they do, um, they don't require any propellant, it would just require electricity, which you could easily get by putting a little PV panel on these shades. Technically they could run forever. So NASA's Eagle Works has been experimenting with this idea for a while, but if it's able to produce any thrust at all, it's almost indistinguishable from the movement of air in a still room. So it's still got a long ways to go, but it doesn't need to produce that much thrust to just, you know, give it a little bit of adjustment out there in space. But perhaps the ultimate hack to this problem would be to have all the manufacturing and all those factories that I was talking about be done by autonomous robots and then move those factories to the moon. There are so many advantages to doing this on the moon. Just for starters, the low gravity makes the construction way less energy intensive, which means you burn way less fuel to leave the surface and reach L1. And besides, it's less distance to cover. You're already a quarter of the way there. Not to mention you can use the momentum from the moon's orbit to slingshot the shades out to L1 as it swings around. And they can be any size you want. You're not limited to aerodynamic rocket fairings. You don't technically need any fairings at all. And again, with 1.6 gravity, you can launch way more of them at a time. So imagine there are autonomous factories on the far side of the moon, digging up regolith, melting it into shades, and assembling the control modules from aluminum in the regolith. Now regular launches of supplies from Earth would still need to be taken up to the moon, you know, for all the stuff that you can't make on the moon, but it wouldn't be 800 launches a day. These factories stack them onto pods three weeks out of the month, and then in the week that the moon is approaching L1 in its orbit, the pods are shot towards L1 on hundreds of railguns using no propellant to get them out of the moon's gravity well. The pods cruise out to the L1, drop off the shades, and then use thrusters to head back to the moon and land, refuel, and the process repeats itself. This could be running 24-7 with minimal human involvement. It's scalable. It uses a lot less Earth resources. This is set it and forget it. We're really not that far away from being able to do this. I mean, I could go on about the current state of autonomous robots and moon missions and railguns and alternative propulsions and, I don't know, maybe I will someday, but suffice to say, we're already in the baby steps of a lot of this stuff. But to get to where anything like this could possibly be feasible would require a massive amount of investment. And the question becomes, can we afford it? Well, according to a study last year from the Economist Intelligence Unit, we might not be able to afford not to. They calculated that climate change could cost the world economy $7.9 trillion by 2050 due to flooding and droughts and famines and breakdowns of supply chains. So if we're going to have to spend that money anyway, we might as well spend it on something that could mitigate the problem, something that would actually go into the hands of families and companies. It's like every time there's a really expensive space probe that goes up, something like Curiosity or now Perseverance, um, you always hear people that look at the price tag and they say, they spent all that money and just launched it into space. But it's not like they just filled a rocket with money and launched it into space. All that money went to companies that paid people, and those people used that money to provide for their families and spent that to other companies. That money goes into the economy. So is a giant space shade the best use of that money? Well, there's clearly some massive technological hurdles we have to overcome. It would take decades of advancement in technology to be able to even make this a viable option, and even then it would take hundreds of years to build. 
And still, it's just a band-aid. It still doesn't solve some of the other problems caused by proliferation of CO2 in the atmosphere, like ocean acidification. Now, on the plus side, all the investment in technologies required to make this happen would pay off in ways that we can't even imagine now. Things like an Earth-to-Moon infrastructure, autonomous robots, artificial intelligence, advanced propulsion technologies. All of this would be world-changing. Besides, a big project like this could, could galvanize people, you know? It could bring everyone together, all ideologies, all nationalities, all creeds, all colors, coming together in a spirit of cooperation and sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot what year we're in. <laughs> oh, we're f***ed. Look, this is a crazy idea and just a lot of fun spitballing here, and I implore you to continue the balling of spit down in the comments below, but even as Roger Angel, the guy who uh, wrote this paper, said, uh, this is not the easy fix to all of our problems. In the paper, he wrote, it would make no sense to plan on building and replenishing ever larger space sunshades to counter continuing and increasing use of fossil fuel. The same massive level of technology, innovation, and financial investment needed for the sunshade could, if also applied to renewable energy, surely yield better and permanent solutions. A number of technologies hold great promise given appropriate investment. Now, as I've said before, this is a year of transition. And with everything going on right now with the pandemic and whatnot, climate change might not be top of mind for most people. It's understandable, one crisis at a time. But as we come out of this dumpster fire of a year, hopefully with you know more of an eye toward changing up our systems and our infrastructures, maybe this kind of investment in a cleaner grid might be the thing that we the kick in the pants to get the economy started again. You know, kill two birds with one stone. Those poor birds. Now I made a ton of assumptions. In this video, there's a lot of different ways to calculate and sort of look at all this stuff. I invite you guys to spitball your brains out down in the comments below. Point out anything I might have missed. Point out anything I might have gotten wrong. Any ideas that you've heard that would factor into this whole equation. Talk it up amongst yourselves down below. Or if you like, you can just throw some shade at me. I said throw some shade at me. Big thanks to Skillshare for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon that are building a community, supporting the channel, and just being generally overall awesome people. I got some new people that have joined. I gotta murder their names real quick. We've got Libby Holtman, Lauren Newman, Jackie Donnelly, Theodore Wilson, John Pennington III, uh, Donald C. Klein, Peter Pernu, I think I've said your name wrong before, uh, Dean McManus, The Ratty Show, Lance Fay, Alicia Herbiter, Chris Leone, Joe in a Box, uh, Jonathan Paul, Kerry Silco, and Jared Danielson. Thank you guys so much. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos and just access to me and just be part of an awesome community, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, Google thinks you'll like this video as well. So give her a look. Um, and if you do like that, you can check out any of the others. And if you like what I do, I invite you to subscribe. Come back with videos every Monday. All right, that's it for now. You guys go out there, have an eye-opening week. Be safe, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.